Here are a photo of the lineup of crock pots, and it's substantial. And so I like to do that every year, and then in my memories it pops up. And we did great last year. Hope to do it again this year. And uh, it's just a really great time. And that's going to be February 11th. That'll be right after church. Uh, bring your favorite soup and uh, your favorite topics for Sundays, and it's a lot of fun. Any other announcements besides that? There is a business meeting tonight. Um, that's going to be a board meeting, church board meeting at 6.30. So all the quarterly reports should be in. Everything should be ready to go. We'll look that over tonight at 6.30. Um, anything else that's not in the bulletin? Nothing? Okay. We'll begin. Turn your hymn books to number 21. Christ is our cornerstone, number 21. We're going to sing, uh, I think it's the first, second, and third verses. First, second, and third verses of Christ is our cornerstone, number 21. <laughs> sure this is loud enough, David, for me. I'm going to look at Acts chapter 16 to give us a little background for Philippians as we begin teaching that book to touch on Paul's missionary journey to Philippi so you have some understanding of what, some background there. But starting in Acts chapter 16 and verse 1, We'll read through the, the whole chapter. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the, his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, him and all his family were baptized. 
The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Turn your hymn books to 565. I am praying for you. 565. We're going to sing the first, second, and fourth verses of 565. So today, Travis will start his month of prayer. 
morning. Um, any praises or prayer requests today? You guys have made it extremely easy for me. Thank you. <laughs> um, if we could bow our head in prayer, please. Dear Lord, um, thank you for bringing us together today um, to celebrate you and your day um, as we do every day of the week. We ask that you be with Greg as he starts in uh, Philippians and give him guidance to share your word with us and us to be able to take something with us. Please look after us as we go about the rest of this day and the rest of this week that we keep you with us and in our hearts and share you with others. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our worship songs. First one will be one we do a cappella. In need of grace. In need. Talks about having gratitude for 
those in Philippi, the believers, and we're going to say gratitude. Thankful to God for all those that fell
for the praises you give us. We indeed need you. We need you to make yourself known in our life every day, every moment, that we might be in your word, that we might grow, that we might sing songs of praise to you because you are our everything. Lord, we know that you have brought us into your family and we are well blessed because of this. Help us today as we praise you to be grateful for the opportunity to worship and then to hear your word preached for you would desire us to learn from you and we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Those ages 4 to 7 dismissed to Junior Church. I assume there are clipboards over there. So if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 1, that is where we will be. I will be using the NIV so it'll match up with your pew Bibles and if you have the NIV with you, I think it's the 1984, I believe. Yeah, we're going to look at Philippians though. So, let's open with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather and to worship you and fellowship and to, to learn from your word. Help us to glean the truths contained into it, apply them to our lives, to, to honor you and glorify you because of what we see there and what you have done for us. Uh, bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so Philippians, we have just a quick overview to help get you familiar. We have the author of Philippians is, is Paul. There, as you study through different scriptures, you'll find there are often disputes over like, well, who's really the author? Was it truly Paul? This is a book that there's really no... No argument that it was Paul who wrote this. Um, and as you can gather from the name, and this is written to the Christians at Philippi. It was interesting looking up. So Philippi would be in modern-day northeastern Greece, right on, not immediately on the Aegean Sea, but close to it, adjacent. And... One of the cool things we have about technology these days is, I was like, oh, if I pull this up on Google Maps and start looking at it, and I was like, oh, there's, there's Philippi. And then you can switch to satellite view, and you can look, and you can see all these, like, these ruins. And there's like, oh, there's one that's uh, Lydia's well, I think. It's who we read about in, in Acts. There's all these different landmarks that are still there, they're in pretty poor condition nowadays, over 2,000 years later. But you can look at a map and see the actual place. It's, there's still something there from, from what was. Uh, 
So this is written in about 61 AD. Paul's visit that we read about in Acts chapter 16 happened around AD 50. So this is about 11 years after Paul's missionary visit there, where the church would have been established, the church planted. Um, one of the, the nice things about Philippians is you'll find as we study it that Philippians is a book that really just gives a lot of encouragement. There's a lot of encouragement to be joyful. There's not a lot of uh, like correcting, correction given. And the other interesting fact, this is not really relevant to what we're going to study, but Philippi is named after Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Right? You've all heard of Alexander the Great. You may not know a whole lot about him, but it was his father who founded the city of Philippi. So just a little fun fact. But I had said that Many of the epistles were written as letters of correction that went out to different churches, different groups of, you need to work on these things, you need to correct these things, You're, you, are off, you are off course here. And Philippians is a letter of encouragement. And we, we have the, we're really just going to look at the first two verses today, but we have the first hint that this is a letter of encouragement right in that introduction. And if you look at a lot of the dip, Paul's epistles, you will find, and it at first seems like an innocuous thing, but in 2 Corinthians and Galatians and 1 Timothy and others, Paul begins those letters with a declaration of his, his apostleship in Jesus Christ by the authority of God. Right? So he begins those letters and he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. By God. He begins those letters by establishing his authority, and I think he does that because he's going to get into some things where they might say, like, who's this guy to tell us what to do? But he begins the letter by saying, there is authority here. Do not ignore me. I was, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He does not begin this letter in that manner. In Philippians, his focus is encouraging the church at Philippi to have joy in Christ. It's not a letter of correction, but rather a letter of encouragement. And so he doesn't begin this letter with his qualifications. There's, there's not a reason for the reader to question his authority. He has a good relationship. He is on good terms with the church in Philippi. That's When somebody sends you a letter of commendation, you don't, you're not like... Who are you to give me a, a attaboy, right? What's, what's your authority to tell me I did a good job? We're usually like, yeah, love it, right? You sent me something nice, told me something great about myself. We love it whenever we get a little flattery. We don't question who it's coming from, even if maybe they don't have the authority to do it. We still like it. But just these, the first two verses of Philippians is what I intend to, to stay in today. It begins, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, 
together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to start just by giving you a refresher on who Paul is. Like most, of, most of us here, you've been in the church for a while, you have a pretty good idea of Paul, but not everybody's in the same place. And even so, it's still good to have a reminder. But we first hear about Paul in Acts chapter 7 and verse 58. And what's going on there in chapter 7, verse 58? This is the, the stoning of Stephen. And it's sort of starting in 57, and this is regarding Stephen. It says, At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So at this point in time in Scripture, he is known as Saul. But he was a Pharisee. He was a devout Jew. And part of his devotion was his commitment to persecuting the followers of Jesus Christ, of getting rid of these, these wayward Christians in his eyes. But God intervenes in, in Saul's life. And that conversion is detailed in Acts chapter 9, where Jesus comes to him and strikes him blind. And one of the key things I wanted to show you in that account is in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. And this isn't even given to Paul. This is given to Ananias. But it, it gives us a picture of what Paul is going to do in his service to Christ. Acts 9, 15 says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So God takes this man, Paul, known as Saul then, and he's going to use him. He says he's going to carry my name before the Gentiles, so those who are not Jewish, and the, their kings, so all these non-Jewish kings, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, and before the people of Israel. So he will become a witness to Jesus Christ, to the Gentiles and the Jews. This man, who is the persecutor of Christians, who sought to, to build himself up by killing and arresting Christians, right? He is now going to become the one who spreads that message. And so as you continue looking through Acts, you'll find eventually that Saul becomes known as Paul. And Paul eventually takes three extended missionary journeys throughout the Roman world at that time, leaving Israel and branching out, heading across Asia. And during his second journey, he meets Timothy, and that was back in Acts chapter 16, in those first five verses you have where he meets Timothy in Lystra, 
and picks him up and he takes Timothy on as, as a protege. He, he takes him under his wing. And later on in that journey, their, their church is established in Philippi. And like I said, it's approximately 50 AD when that happens. It is considered to be the first Christian church established in Europe. They sort of had just passed into what is considered to be Europe. And that account is given in Acts chapter 16. You have meeting of Lydia. And it was, there's some interesting things that show up there in that meeting in Acts chapter 16 that give us some helpful information about the church in Philippi, I think. But the church in Philippi most likely consists of a majority of Gentile believers. There's, if there is any, if there are any Jewish converts in that church, it is quite likely very, very few. And we we pick up on that because of in that conversion that happens in Acts sixteen thirteen. It tells us that. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. So there was the typical practice of Paul's when he went into a new place is he would go to the synagogue. And in the synagogue with the Jewish people, he would, they would be the first to receive the gospel. And when he gets to Philippi, there apparently is no synagogue because he doesn't go to the synagogue. He goes outside the city gate to the river to a place of prayer. And that's how I sort of draw the conclusion that this church is probably made up of mostly Gentiles and not very many Jewish believers. And so that's just like a quick overview of who Paul is, sort of this establishment of the church. And then you had Timothy, who is also mentioned there in the Philippians. It's Paul and Timothy. So Timothy was from Lystra, who we said... Paul picked up on this second journey. And looking at maps, Lystra is roughly 600 miles away from Philippi. It is not a close-by thing. It's not like Paul picked up Philippi and then they got to Lystra the next day and then established the church in Philippi. Things You can read through the book of Acts pretty quickly, but the book of Acts unfolds over a large span of time. It's, it's hard to keep that in perspective as you, as you study, like things are taking place slowly. But Timothy's mother was Jewish and his father was Greek, it tells us. But we see some, some hints of Timothy's dedication to the gospel in that it says he became circumcised as an adult, Right? If you are familiar with the book of Acts, it's back in chapter 15. They have a council meeting in Jerusalem where they say, you don't need to become circumcised to become a follower of Jesus Christ. There, there is no value in it for making you right with, with God, of building that relationship with Christ. And yet here we have Timothy doing that very thing they just said you don't have to do. It can be a little confusing. But what we understand is that Timothy is circumcised because Paul's ministry primarily goes to the Jews first, and then he goes to the Gentiles afterwards. 
And so him having Timothy, who's already like half Jewish, half Gentile, which gives him like a, one tally in the negative box in ministering to the Jewish people. So then he would have, if he's an uncircumcised half Jew, he gets another deduction. So he doesn't want that to be a stumbling block. So he says, I will be circumcised in order to remove that potential stumbling block. It shows us his dedication to the spread of the gospel. Hmm. My second page is blank. <laughs> well, I should have checked that before I left the house. I do have it. Never mind. I'm sorry. My printer threw a blank page in the mix of my uh, my papers here this morning. Throw me for a loop. So yeah, Timothy is circumcised not as a requirement of obedience to the law. Rather, it's to remove a stumbling block in his ministry to the Jewish people. And so he's included in this letter that Paul's writing to the Philippians because he would have been familiar with the church in Philippi. He would have been there when it was founded. He would have been there in that first encounter at the river. He was one of Paul's traveling companions. He was being essentially mentored by Paul to take on this role as a missionary. And we have further mention of Timothy in Philippians in chapter 2, starting in verse 19. And there it says in Philippians 2.19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So, in the relationship of Paul and Timothy, Timothy is like a son to Paul. Paul has been his mentor, training him, teaching him, giving him guidance. In other scriptures, Paul often refers to Timothy as his son. And we learn here in this book of Philippians that Paul desires to send Timothy to the church in Philippi. And it can be a little confusing when you start reading this uh, Philippians 1 verse 1 where he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You can pick up the impression that, well, maybe this is like a co-author. They're, they're both writing this letter. But I get the impression as, I, as you read through this that this is Paul writing this letter, especially when he makes that reference to Timothy. You see as he, even in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul uses the, the first person singular I. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, right? It is not we. This letter is not written in the plural, it is written in the singular. 
as Paul's doing it. Well, Philip, Philip, Timothy was instrumental to the ministry of Paul, and he was well known to that church in Philippi. So he's worthy of a mention with him. And we, uh, as we understand, Paul had poor eyesight, and maybe Timothy was taking the dictation for this. There's lots of things we can assume. We don't really, don't really know. But we do know that Timothy had a, was well known to that church, and they would have appreciated him. So it is valuable to include him in this letter. So he goes on, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. They're identified as servants of Christ. And looking into that more, it's, it's easy to read servants and say, yes, they are servants and just continue on. But to understand what's really, what's really meant by that term servants. I don't speak Greek, but from what I understand, the word that is used there is doulos, which would refer to a slave or a bondservant. In the New American Standard translation, it is translated as bondservant there. And in our modern context, if you, you read that through and you say, these are bondservants of Christ Jesus, it kind of hits differently than if you read it as servants, the way that we understand servants versus slaves. But it's a, it denotes that Paul and Timothy's position in relationship to Christ, that they serve him, that they are bond servants of his, they are slaves of his. It is that Christians are to consider God's will and desires above their own, that they are to be his bondservants, his slaves. They are in service to Christ Jesus. And, and thinking about it with Paul, you know, Paul, if you're going to pick like an apostle who's going to be like the most worthy of honor, Paul's the one that you're like, yeah, Paul's the guy. He's the most worthy of honor of the apostles, right? He's the author of 13 of the New Testament epistles. Right? Of, the, of the letters we have in our New Testament, he's written 13 of them. That's pretty significant. But Paul speaks about that here in Philippians. In chapter 3, 4 through 6, he sort of gives his, his qualifications. So Philippians 3, the second half of verse 4, it begins, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So in regards to keeping the the law that God had given and being like a Jew of the Jews, Paul was the guy. Right? Nobody did a better job than him as far as he's concerned. If, it, if you could earn your own righteousness, Paul would have done it. That's what he was working on. That's what he's saying here. But now, Paul, the Christian, 
in verses 7 through 10, says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul does not have... I wouldn't say that Paul has like a, a low self-esteem. He is not an Eeyore character. He doesn't walk around saying, oh, woe is me, I'm such a miserable wretch. But he understands his position to Christ. He understands that he cannot earn it. He, has, he tried that in the past. He tried to earn his own righteousness. And he, he understands that Christ is the only one that can earn his righteousness. And Christ has earned his righteousness and freely given it to him. So he values Christ and what Christ accomplished on the cross so much that by comparison, his own accomplishments are rubbish, is what he says. And so that reflection on Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, Christ is the only worthy slave master, and you are very fortunate to be in bondage to him. In Romans, I've talked about that before, in Romans 6, verses around verse 20 to 23, it details this, Paul lays out, that you are either slaves to sin, which leads to death, or you are slaves to God, which leads to eternal life. There's no, there's no in between. You We discussed this in Sunday school about what freedom is. Right? We have this, we, we have a poor definition of freedom in our minds most of the time. We think freedom is doing whatever it is that we want to do, that that is true freedom, where in actuality, true freedom leads to anarchy and chaos because everybody does what is right in their own eyes, whereas true freedom is the freedom to do what God says, because that is the best thing. It has the best possible outcomes. That is true freedom, to live in right relationship with him. So they, Paul identifies him and Timothy as servants, as bond servants, as slaves of Jesus Christ. They point to who their master is. Who is in charge? And he goes on and he gives the audience in the second half of verse 1 there. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. And here we have the word saint, which in our culture can be confusing at times, depending on how you understand it. But as scripture uses the word saint, it refers to those who are set apart and now belong to Jesus. 
So it's not the moral quality of being without sin. It is those who have been justified with God, and therefore God does not see their sin. Yet they are not a perfect people, but they are seen by God as having the righteousness of Christ. So if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a saint. Right? And the, the, I think some of the confusion comes is you'll hear every now and then that like the Pope has bestowed sainthood upon so-and-so. And the Roman Catholic Church doesn't have the authority to grant sainthood. That ability belongs to God alone. He makes saints, not the Pope. But that can cause some confusion as you, you hear like, oh, so-and-so's a saint. You have Mother Teresa was given sainthood. Um, but that is not where sainthood comes from. Sainthood comes from a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi would be all those who have placed their faith in Christ. The church in Philippi. He goes on and says that those, the saints, together with the overseers and deacons. Now, I don't, he doesn't single out the overseers and deacons because they're not saints. It wouldn't make any sense to have people who are in charge of the church that are not within that body of saints. But they are given a special place of, of honor in this address. Um, they are in charge of the welfare of those in the church, right? The overseers would be the leadership of the church. In our common language that we use, it would include the elders, the pastors. They are those who oversee the people. They are the shepherds of the flock, right? That, the term overseer, you can think of the shepherd who is maybe in a higher position so they can oversee the flock. They're, they're looking at the sheep, making sure that Everything is going well, but they are being cared for. The deacons that are mentioned here are those who serve the needs of the congregation. And more specifically, in Acts chapter 6, when they sort of institute the office of deacons, they, in that instance, they are helping with the distribution of food to the widows at that time because the apostles were spending so much time meeting physical needs that they didn't have time to meet the spiritual needs of people. So they, they said, we need to appoint deacons to take care of the physical needs of people. But both of these offices fall under that heading of saint, right? You should not hold the office of overseer or deacon without having been set apart in Christ. So overseers and deacons are responsible for the spiritual and physical welfare of the church. Of those, the body in Philippi, all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Then he goes in verse 2 and he he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find this is a, a standard greeting from Paul. This is typical of him. Uh, it's used in at least nine of his letters. 
if you include Philippines. This almost this exact same wording. This was just part of his normal greeting. <clears throat> the interesting thing is as you, you look at that greeting and you think about it, it's really a summary of the gospel message that's given there. So grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have God's work through Christ, right? Christ dying on the cross. Grace brings people into right relationship with God and one another, giving them peace. So without the grace of God shown to believers through Christ, there is no peace with God. He is just this quick little summary, this little hit jab at to what the gospel is in his greeting of all of his letters. He, he throws that in there. And you also see there, we have this declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That he, that Christ has authority, that he has dominion. In the Roman world, it would have been important to point out that Caesar is not Lord because Caesar demanded worship. The emperor wanted worshipped. But they're pointing out, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's in charge. So what are some of the things that we can conclude from just looking at these two verses, right? Who, who is mentioned here? You see the power of the gospel to transform lives. When you look at Paul and Timothy, you look at who they were, right? Who was Paul before he came to Christ? Right? These two men's lives are radically different because of Jesus. So before Paul came to Christ, he was persecuting the church. He was throwing people in prison. He was giving his approval for the murder of believers. And now, as we read what he's writing here, he's establishing churches. Philip, Philippi, the church in Philippi, is a church that Paul established. As Paul is writing this letter, Paul is in prison. It's commonly thought he's in prison in Rome, but he is the one in prison, whereas he used to be the one who put people in prison. Now he is in prison for being a Christian. You see this radical change of what the gospel has done in his life. We saw, you see in Philippians 3, where he talked about all the, the things he had done for his own righteousness, and now he counts them as rubbish, right? So the things that Paul values are radically different, right? He no longer places value in his own righteousness. Rather, he values the righteousness that comes by faith and what Christ has done to make him right with God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul talks about this the mercy that was shown to him. Paul writes there in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. 
even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul points there to this transformation of his life that happened because of Christ. You see the just the mention of his name in the beginning of this letter, thinking upon who Paul is, what God has done in his life, all these circumstances, you see the power of the gospel on display here. And then Timothy. We don't have, we have information on Timothy, but we don't have the copious amounts of information on Timothy like we have on Paul. But what we know is Timothy was a young man there in the letters of Timothy, it talks about, like, don't let them look down on you because you are young. Timothy was probably timid and probably reserved. And yet, those things that, are, that culture and society would say, those are not valuable traits. You should probably stick to doing something else. And yet, Timothy, with the guidance of Paul and the conviction of the gospel message. Timothy was used to guide and strengthen the first century churches. In Philippians, Paul said, I, long, I'm, I intend to send Timothy with you to encourage you, to strengthen you. This, this man who the world would have probably written off, and yet he is used mightily to establish churches. And so... You also have that pointing out that Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. They are bond servants. They understand their position in relationship to Christ. They know whom they serve. And Christ is a good master, right? You, you do well to be his bond servant. And lastly, in that greeting where grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you have that only the grace of God can give you peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That there is no other way to have peace with man and God other than through faith in Jesus Christ. And glean those things from just these two short verses, the power of the gospel to change lives, our roles, in relationship to Jesus and the change that happens, the peace that we have with God because of the grace that has been shown to us. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to share the the truths contained within it here. Um, Help us to keep these in in mind as we go about our weeks and um, as we share with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.
hymn books to 38. Ye servants of God, your master proclaim. We're going to sing the first, third, and fourth verse. And on the fourth verse, if the deacons would come and prepare for communion, we'll have communion at that time. First, third, and fourth verses. Ye servants of God, your master proclaim and publish abroad his wonderful name. The name all victorious of Jesus extol his kingdom, his glorious he rules over all. Salvation to God who sits on the throne. Let all cry aloud and honor the Son. The praises of Jesus the angels proclaim. Faces and worship the Lamb. Then let us adore and give him his right, all glory and power and wisdom and might, all honor and blessing with angels above, and thanks never ceasing, infinite love. slow obeying the command to come. Listening to the message of the Philippians and Paul, you realize that these are the people that God worked in to bring them to himself and their recognition of their unworthiness and yet the Lord loving them and bringing them and, uh, and Paul then being one of those who institutes the way to do communion and reminding having the Lord done it and Paul then repeating it, we go to First Corinthians and uh, chapter 11, find that you're a people who love the Lord. And in that love, you have that opportunity to take communion, to participate in remembering what he did for you. And knowing that one day we will meet him in glory. But until that day, we remember him. And that's what we'll do again this morning. Sometimes seems to me like when you do it once a month or you kind of, I just did this four weeks ago. You know, long. But if you remember what he did, and you remember why he did it, that's what it's about. Is that reminder, humbling us, making us remember how unique a relationship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, with God because of the work he did. And so that's what we're doing again this morning, remembering and celebrating and uh, being thankful. 
Because uh, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now with the Corinthians, he was also straightening out the fact that they would often come together and not do things together. They wouldn't wait on each other. Here, you patiently wait on each other. And it is a good picture of the way that he loves us and we love one another. So what's that word prayer? Gracious fathers, we come to participate in, in this your celebration that you've given us, that we might celebrate your death, your giving of life to us, your resurrection, and one day the fact that we can celebrate together again. Lord, it can be a very exciting and yet also humbling thing for us to remember what you've done for us. So Lord, thank you for going on that cross. Thank you for the beatings. Thank you for all that you went through in order to be the one who would pay for our sin. Help us today to humble ourselves before you and to be able to celebrate what you've done for us in Christ's name.
this night. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you all of it. Dear Lord, we also remember that it wasn't just that you had been beaten or put on a cross, but you shed your blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We're grateful for you shedding your blood, dying on that cross, that we might be cleansed from our sin. And that you rose again to guarantee our relationship with you. Might we celebrate that, remembering what you've done, free indeed because of how you cleanse us from our sin, a relationship with you because we can now stand in your presence. Thank you, Father, in your Son's name. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me drink ye all of it <coughs> go ahead and stand and we'll sing together I forgot the name of the song.
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free.